We are back again. It is Chase and Josh with Factor Fantasy. That's Chase and I'm Josh, and we are here to give you part six of the Lord of the Rings and the Two Towers today. We are going to be, where we are going to be covering part two of the movie differences between the novel and the film. So this is going to be the very last episode that we touch anything to do with on Lord of the Rings and the Two Towers today. So this will be the complete finality of what's in the novel and what's in the second part of the film, the extended editions. So this is going to be a big episode today where we kind of close out the second you know, installment of the entire series. You know, And before we kind of jump into some of the major key differences that we're going to detail... I just want to kind of go ahead and give Chase the opportunity to say a few words before we get started. And, you know, we'll talk a little bit about, you know, the setup of it as well. You know, switching back and forth between different perspectives, between Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli, Frodo and Sam. You got Gandalf kind of going off into a different thing here as well, too. Merry and Pippin. So there's a lot going on here, and it it's jumps around quite a bit. But there's, there's some key differences that we're going to highlight today and talk about. We're going to have some fun with it. Like I said, before we do, I'm going to turn the floor over to Chase to say a few words, and then we'll jump right into it. Yeah, man, this was a, a good one. A lot of differences here that we'll go into, but a lot of action, man. A lot more action than last week, so that was good stuff. Um, and it's just, we've talked about this before, it's just amazing how fast it's already flown. And after today, you know, we're kicking it into third gear, and uh, it's all kind of, I mean, we're still going uphill in a way, but, you know, that's, you know, we're in that final like quarter there <laughs> really i guess you can call this kind of like the third quarter really today like we're closing out the third quarter and um it's it's good stuff so i'll let you uh take us away and uh let's get a mouse in the chalice and get it started man sounds like a plan dude let's crack this bad boy open there it is glasses in the air here's to you and here's to me best of friends will always be and if by chance you disagree then fuck you, here's to me. <laughs> Cheers, brother. Trixie and false. <laughs> Perfect. And before we get started and jump right into differences here, normally we give a kind of a recap. It's hard to give a recap when we do like the differences part one versus the differences part two as we do them back to back like this. So basically all we did last week, this is your first time joining us, is we did the same exact format, but we talked about what went up into the point of where the first part of the film cut off, which was where Faramir took Frodo and Sam kind of hostage, I guess we can say. And so that's where we're going to pick up today what happens immediately after that. I think it starts off from the pros- like the perspective of uh, Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas. So that's going to be fun. That's how we're going to go through it. We're going to you know try to match it up as closely as we can. There's some things that you know we find in here that are differences, and there's stuff that happens in the novel that doesn't take place in this film, which is going to be something that we talk about too. So a lot of good stuff, man. And, uh, yeah, we'll go ahead and kick it off starting right now. The, the first highlighted thing that I put down that I noticed was just the funny little additions that the film would add. You know, the, the biggest thing here, the one that I took away first, was you know, Gimli talking to Eowyn about female dwarves and, and uh, you know, making her laugh, you know, talking about how you know, people, some people think they just spring up out of the holes in the ground because so they've never seen a female dwarf because it looks so similar to the male dwarves. And then like, the horse gets out of his control and, and like, trots off a little bit, and he falls off of it. I thought it was really funny because <laughs> his like, whole thing was, um, that was deliberate. Nobody panic. That was deliberate. <laughs> I thought that was really, really <laughs> funny. It just, I mean, this has never happened in, in the novel, but it's just one of those funny little things that, you know, it's really was endearing to the audience, at least in my opinion. So I thought that was pretty cool. In addition to that, another funny little ad I thought was that happens pretty much right afterwards 
was with this soup that Eowyn makes. You know, she tries to bring it up to Aragorn, and and uh, she's like, "I made some soup. It's not much, but it's hot." And gives it to him in the bowl, and he, like, he tastes it. And obviously, it's disgusting. You can see from his facial expression, but he doesn't want to hurt her feelings. And so he's like, "Hmm." It's good. And then, you know, she walks away and he goes to <laughs> dump it out. And then she comes back around and says, you know, like, my my grandfather says he went to bed. And he, like, has to pull the soup back up and then it burns his hand. He's got to, like, sit there and grimace and, like, fight through the burn because he tried to dump it out. I just thought that was really, really funny. Uh, you know, just a little bit of addition there. And then, you know, the really cool thing right after that is we find out exactly how old Aragorn is. And this is only something you can find in the extended edition of the film is that he tells her that he's 87 years old. So that, that that kind of talks about like the long life, and you, if you see him, he looks like he's forty in the film, and that that's kind of the Dunedain bloodline of Numenor that like, is he's blessed with long life. That's part of their whole deal. Like obviously he's not an elf where he's got immortality and and all that, but you know, uh, eighty-seven years old, he was he's older than King Theoden. He ended up riding into battle with King Theoden's father. So I just thought that was pretty cool to kind of give us that backstory. We do learn a little bit about how old Aragorn is as well, just not in the Two Towers novel, talking about from the book side of stuff. And then uh, two more things, and I'll turn it over to, to Chase here, is that there was really no mention of Arwen at all in the Two Towers book. Uh, like She just really doesn't appear in there, period. <laughs> and in, right. in the film, that it actually has a big impact in a way. Yeah, because we see this almost this dynamic between Aragorn and Arwen where their relationship, though they care for each other, the circumstances almost kind of pull them, pull them apart. You know, and I'll talk a little bit about it here, but basically there's, they have this cute little flashback in the film where they're, they're very lovey-dovey and she gives them that, that like angel, like elven star jewel necklace thing and, you know, he takes it with him or whatever. Then Elrond kind of discusses with Aragorn like hey she stays because of you like you're being selfish if you keep her here like she belongs with her people you know all the tears death and destruction you should you should let her go off to the undying lands and then Aragorn's like what like then all of what she has of me is just going to be a memory and and you know he kind of basically talks Aragorn into quote-unquote doing the right thing and letting her go if he really cares about her because there's nothing for her here in Middle Earth and so that's what Aragorn does. He tries to like leave in the early parts of the morning, and Arwen stops him. And then he even tells her something along the lines of like, "Hey, this was a dream, nothing more." And tries to give her back that that the like, sparkling crystal necklace that we were just mentioning. And she's like, "No, it was a gift. You need to keep it." And so there's this whole that 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 whole thing was great because it added drama to it and like a relationship effect uh, of you know a love like this like love and not interest but aspect to it that really we don't find in the two towers novel at all and, and honestly it's kind of a, a cool ad because i think in, it incorporates more of a uh, broader spectrum of audience so i actually enjoyed that little edition of it and then uh before i turn it back over to chase is just this full scene just never happened in the novel but it was a really cool addition where the wolves of isengard attack in the film you know, and we had that really sick bow shot from Legolas from, I don't know, 300 yards away where he just, like, picks off the guy straight off the wolf's back, throws another thing. Then then he turns around and, and backward flips with one arm up on the horse behind Gimli. Like, that was pretty sick. And then, they obviously, we have the um, the whole battle there where, you know, King Thaden and his warrior men fight off the wolves of Isengard and the orcs that were riding them. And we got that part where Aragorn actually falls off the cliff and is presumed dead, and like, that—that's a whole other aspect of it too. Just that we never get that in the novel at all, where Aragorn, where, where all might be lost. Remember, Aragorn's the heir of 
Isidore or whatever. You know, he was the son of Arathorn, and he's like in the last in the line of the uh, Elendil, which is like he's the rightful king of Middle Earth. So if he died there, like everything's pretty much all hopes lost. And so that the movie did a great job of adding that extra piece of dramatics to it. And so with that being said, though, I'll turn it over to Chase, and uh, he'll take you through some of the differences that he has. Yeah, no, it was great, man. You nailed it. Um, just going into some detail on the warg battle. You know, I love the battles, man. I love the battles. Uh, so I just got some details here, which is pretty cool. So, like, when they attack, I thought it was really awesome. So um, it, it's kind of like, remember, it was very interesting. It was like it was the stampede in Lion King. Like, the way they were coming over the hill was absolutely just gorgeous, in my opinion. And when you said you saw Legolas... And that arrow at first he looks at him and it was he was there with like a rohan rider and the rohan rider just says uh like says they're coming over the hill and he just goes a scout and yells back to aragorn and they just start charging so eventually they clash and it was just badass like you said legolas like picked off that like was picking them off one by one as they were coming down that hill and as they collide gimli i'm a rag on rag on Gimli here a little bit <laughs> so uh, Gimli gets knocked down and uh I put knocked down to the earth but like an arrow was in this warg's mouth and it was coming towards him and I thought this was really funny he said bring your pretty face to my axe <laughs> and then as the like warg is coming at him Legolas slays like the beast <laughs> right before he could get there and uh he just goes, that one counts as mine. <laughs> it was great. It was fantastic. Um, but then, you know, you have Aragorn. That was kicking ass, man. Um, but on top, uh, as, like, another one gets killed, like, another one that's approaching Gimli, like, falls and falls on top of him. And then as Gimli is about to get killed by another warg, Aragorn saves his ass again everyone's saving Gimli's ass in this fight throws a spear he kills another one right before he get to Gimli but at this point it's like making piles on him from where he's gotten knocked down and he's getting stuck on the ground and um but this is where you know the orc tries to like kick uh so like Aragorn gets knocked down from his horse unhorsed and then he tries to get up on this orc's warg to take this orc down. And as the orc is trying to kick him off and take him down, the warg continues to run with Aragorn attached. And he's caught, so he can't get loose. And as like the warg is running, he's trying to stop with the orc on it and Aragorn attached. And he's clawing at the rocks, and it just slides off the cliff. And I thought this part was really dramatic because... When they were going through, uh, you know, the bodies of who died and the wounded after the battle was done and they had won, they saw the orc there and he was holding the necklace of Arwen. And that's how they knew this was real because the orc, he goes, he looks at Legolas as he's dying and goes, he's dead. Took a little tumble off the cliff. And Legolas goes, you lie. And the orc dies in front of Legolas holding Arwen's necklace. And as they get back, Theoden looks at Eowyn. And this kind of shows, 
the reason I bring this up is because it's about what we talked about a few weeks ago. There's definitely some sort of spark there for her to, like, care this much. And Theoden goes, get the wounded on horses. The wolves of Isengard will return. Leave the dead. Come. And they get back, and Eowyn says, so few, so few have returned. Lord Aragorn, where is he? And Gimli just says, he fell. And and you kind of have more of a dramatic moment. I, I really like this battle because this was never even brought up talked about even in passing anything in the film it wasn't even like in the books of game of thrones where you heard about hard home through wound wound like there was no mention of this at all it was just a really cool ad uh and with that i'll turn it back over to you man yeah a good point yeah absolutely and when you said you know it was a it was there was no mention of it in the novel, not the film, obviously, that we just went through it. Oh, uh, the in novel, the, yeah. The film, so. <laughs> no mention in the film, even though I just broke down like an hour of it here for you. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, funny stuff. But next thing I have, and this is, again, another addition, but I, I, I can get why this adds to the uh, climax of where this film is going, where Saruman and Wormtongue, they're like kind of almost going over a strategy together where Wormtongue tells him about the one weakness that Helm's Deep has, the little grate that's a little more than a drain, and that's where they should strike to you know get inside the walls of Helm's Deep. That actually doesn't happen at all in the novel. They don't have this whole you know advisor relationship where they're, you know Sauron's taking advice on how to defeat Rohan, and then on top of that, you know where he says. My lord, like there is no such army, and they go out to like the balcony or whatever, and there's just you know seas of orcs with spears in the air. He's like tens of thousands, and you know yeah, that never actually happens in the novel at all. And the, you know that whole speech, you know, where he says there will be no dawn for men, <laughs> like, <just> thought, <laughs> like that was all just added for dramatic effect. But that actually does not happen in the novel. In the novel, the, the, the host is already attacking. The, the Riders Rohan that Erkenbrand had on that side that was trying to keep those boundaries safe and you know from there you know just based on the numbers they ended up having to flee to Helm's Deep in the middle of trying to go to open battle in the in the in the book so it's a little bit different there then you know again talking about Arwen and Elrond something that just we don't hear really about any of those two Maybe I don't even think in passing. Maybe Elrond in passing at some point in the novel, but I don't really remember it too much outside of that. But in the in the movie here, we have like Arwen and Elrond kind of arguing with each other about staying or leaving, which again never really happens in the book. Then we also have Galadriel and Elrond having this conversation about whether they should help out and like rejoin the old alliances and you know they how they understand that Frodo now gets the fact that this journey is going to claim his life and. Pretty much, almost it makes it seem like all hope is lost. But that, like all this is just pure addition to the, like this never happens in the novel. Like just like, this, <laughs> like it's cool, but it just I don't know where they're coming from. This it's a nice little creative liberty that they took. It just you know it's just not uh, historically accurate if you're comparing it directly to to the book there. But um, also now we switch the perspective to where uh, Frodo and Sam are with Faramir. And the conversation with them is actually pretty close. And the extended edition even shows, you know, because they start having this conversation about where, like, who Frodo is if he's not, like, an, an orc spy. And they said, you know, we, we are actually, you know, hobbits from the Shire. We set out from Rivendell. There was nine of us in total. You know, he, he goes through all of the people in the Fellowship. And obviously when he gets to Boromir's name, Faramir kind of, you know, gets all tensed up because we obviously know Faramir is Boromir's brother. And you know, we have this whole thing where Faramir is like, yeah, you, know, you, you were friends of Boromir, and 
Bobo says, yes, for my part. That's almost word for word in the novel. That's, like, spot on. And uh, they find out at that point that Boromir's dead. And, like I said, that's very, very close to how it happened at that point in the book. But the, the, the thing is, they even added the dream. Like, only, this is only in the extended edition. You're not going to find this in the re- regular generic version or the theatrical version of this film where Faramir goes off into that dreamlike state where he remembers the Boromir's boat floating down the Anduin River by him. That is only in the extended editions, and but that is actually in the novel where he says like he couldn't tell if it was a dream or not, but he doesn't feel like it was a dream, and he's like, Even better yet, I know it in my heart because he was my brother. So honestly, I just wanted to give the, the the movie credit on that, and that was really very close to spot on for how that went in the novel. Um, I also thought this was an interesting addition too. Again, this is only in the extended edition where we see the aftermath of this battle at Asgiliath where. Basically, Faramir was reminiscing about his brother Boromir and how Boromir had won this great battle at Osgiliath and won it back for Gondor from the enemy. And, you know, he's up there shouting, you know, never again will this city fall in enemy hands. And he's like, uh, this uh, city has been reclaimed for Gondor. And then everyone's like shouting (laughs) for Gondor back and stuff. It just shows the type of warrior that Boromir was. And, you know, his father, you get to that, this, you know, I don't know how it is yet because Denethor has not really been mentioned at all other than just in passing in the novel at all. But in the in the film, his character is very nasty, especially speaking directly to how he treats Faramir. And he ends up walking up. He's like, where is my boy? Where is my firstborn? And then he ends up like basically giving Boromir all the credit for fighting off the, the enemy and taking us good. He's like, the way they say it, you almost single-handedly drove back the enemy. <laughs> he's like, no, this victory belongs to Faramir as well. And he's like, ah, Faramir, well, yes, he's the reason why the enemy took it in the first place. Like, he's just being an asshole to him. And then, and then you know, he ends up walking away from his father. He's like, he, you know, Faramir loves you, and you give him no credit. And he's like, don't you lecture me about Faramir. I know his uses, and they are few. Like, he's just being a dickhead to his like, youngest son. doesn't even care about him. You know, but the whole thing and why this is an interesting addition is that. Uh, but this, this is a, here's another difference too in this part too. Obviously, they didn't know that the One Ring was what the Council was called for in Rivendell. You guys remember they had Boromir and Faramir had this dream, and from the dream it said something about Isildur's bane, but they didn't know what that was. So they didn't really know it was the One Ring until they got to the Council. And so it's almost like, I don't know if it's like a plot hole or what in the extended editions because even Boromir looks surprised when they put the ring out on that little, I don't know, I don't want to call it a table, but whatever surface they did where Gimli tried to axe it back in the Fellowship of the Ring. But he even was surprised that the ring was there. So I don't know what this whole extended edition said. Like, he guessed that it was the Ring of Power. Dino guessed that. I don't understand where that comes from. So that might be a little bit of an issue I have. But the biggest thing I took away from this is we see the pressure that Dinothor puts on Boromir. And that's kind of leads to why... Boromir acts the way he did and, and end up trying to take the ring from Frodo because he had all this pressure from his father to bring back that ring and use it for Gondor's aid and you know just trying to do what his father said. So it kind of gives you the whole thing that Boromir himself isn't just a douchebag. It's like he, he had all this pressure on his shoulders because his father looks at him as like the savior of everything. you know. So that's I just thought that was a cool addition. It just never ends up happening in the novel. And then... Uh, What's really cool, too, and I'll turn it back to Chase over this. This is just talking about Smeagol and Gollum a little bit. 
this is pretty close to what ends up happening in the book too, where where Faramir wakes up Frodo and and says they we have, they have Gollum surrounded in that forbidden pool and he says they're gonna shoot him if he doesn't you know do something about it and Frodo's like no we're bound together he goes down and he tricks Gollum in a way to have him come towards him and then that's when the people grab him but this is this is a turning point in Smeagol and Frodo's relationship. That it actually doesn't happen in the novel. There's no turning point because remember, if you guys talk, remember last week, if you joined us last week, we talked about how Smeagol ended up getting a little bit of freedom from Gollum, where he's like, "Leave and never come back," and like so they had a good <laughs> moment of peace between you know Smeagol and Frodo. He was actually being 100% on the Hobbit side, wanting them to be safe and wanting to keep them, you know, the, the, in the right, you know, the right idea. But when Frodo kind of tricked him and Smeagol felt betrayed, that's when Gollum comes back into Smeagol. That just doesn't really happen because Gollum never leaves in the book. He's always he's always struggled with him. So I thought that was a cool addition. And with that, I'll kind of turn it over to Chase to, to go through his next few differences. Yeah, that was great, man. Uh, what's a uh, side note, what is really cool, the actor that played uh, Gollum and Smeagol, whatever one you want to call him, uh, when they did that waterfall scene, because you know, of course, to make Gollum and Smeagol, you got to have CGI in there. Like, it's not exactly... Well, I mean, I guess you could have had a lot of makeup, but they actually made him do that, which was very interesting. They put him in a waterfall, so all of Gollum's movements were exactly what he was doing, and he said the water was so cold because Peter Jackson wanted to make it realistic. They made the water, like, right around... It was, like, 1918 degrees and they had to keep taking him back in and out just because he was actually they even gave him a plastic fish like to smack when he was like sweet juicy fishes <laughs> and uh just because they wanted it so realistic so i thought it was a cool side note but of course i got the golem part here <laughs> and i love i just i just love his whole like arguing with his smeagles on sabbatical <laughs> yeah why does it cry, Smeagol? Cool master hurts us. Master tricked us. Of course he did. I told you he was tricksy, and I told you he was false. Master is our friend. Our friend? Master betrayed us. No, not its business. Leave us alone. Filthy little hobbitses. They stole it from us. No, no. What did they steal, Faramore? My precious! <laughs> it was excellent. I loved it, man. I just love this ad. I thought it was great. It makes it more, in a way, it almost makes you feel not relatable to Smeagol and Gollum but almost more like him as a character because you feel bad that he's going through this argument with himself and it makes it so much more dramatic and intense um the next uh thing I have and I'll turn it over to you is when Theoden you know kind of like this kind of goes back to a couple weeks ago where I was talking about I feel like Theoden it's interesting in this book and novel versus this film because I feel like he wasn't as conceited in a way as he was in the film. Like, I feel like he thinks he knows everything in the film. But, like, he gives this whole plan 
to Gimli and Legolas and Aragorn, and Aragorn kind of goes back and forth with him, and he says, We will cover the causeway and the gate from above. No army has ever breached the deeping wall or set foot inside Hornburg. And Gimli says, This is no rabble of mindless orcs. These are Urukai. Their armor is thick and their shields broad. And Theoden says, Totally talks down to Gimli. I didn't like this at all, so... I'm not a big Gimli guy, but I stick up for him here. <laughs> he said, I have fought many wars, Master Dwarf, and I know how to defend my own keep. <laughs> and he goes, they will break upon the fortress like water on rock. Saruman's hordes will pillage and burn. We've seen it before. Crops can be resown, homes built within these walls. They will outlast them. And then Aragorn gets pissed. They do not come here to destroy Rohan's crops or villages. They come to destroy its people, down to the last child. Theoden says, well, what would you have me do? Look at my men. Their courage hangs by a thread. If this is to be our end, then I would have them make such an end as to be a worthy remembrance. And Aragorn just says, send out riders, my lord. You must call for aid. Theoden, and who will come? Elves? Dwarves? We are not so lucky in our friends as you. The old alliances are dead. Gondor will answer. Gondor? Where was Gondor when the Westfold fell? Where was Gondor when our enemies closed in around us? Where was Gondor? No, my lord Aragorn. We are alone. And it kind of shows to me like he's being stubborn here. Like there are people he didn't even think about. We know I'm not giving anything away. But he it's like he's not thinking outside the box at all. And then this last part, and I'll turn it back over to you just because this is my favorite part here is my boy Legolas. Because let's be real, Legolas kind of, you know, without Legolas, I just don't even think any of this would happen because he's kind of, you know, this, he probably should have just taken the ring himself, honestly. He probably could have <laughs> done this alone. <laughs> but uh, Aragorn goes, farmers, farriers, stable boys. These are no soldiers. Gimli, most have seen too many winters. Legolas, or too few. Look at them, they're frightened. I can see it in their eyes. Bahun, Nele Harain, Donkamanik, which that means, and they should be, 300 against 10,000? See, by our hand, I'm in that Eteros. Aragorn. They have more hope of defending themselves here than at Edoras. Legolas. Aragorn. Min Dagor. Aun Orthric. Nathan Din Aganik. Agadagathaya. Aragorn. They cannot win this fight. They are all going to die. Then I shall die as one of them. And then I think this is like a big part in. I love this part too because this is why I actually chose to learn Elvish and do that whole TikTok thing this year was just for this little line. So I actually did learn that correctly. I'm really surprised by that. <laughs> but um, the point is, I think this is, it really shows, I like this ad because even though Aragorn's being realistic and so is Legolas in this thing, because they know these are literally, they're just picking people off the street to fight that are of age, kind of like the Civil War in this case like whoever they had like to get the numbers and Legolas is being realistic here but it shows Aragorn's passion where he's like no I'm not gonna abandon these people we're gonna do whatever we can and um 
you know later legolas apologizes but it uh it's a it's a big part <laughs> hagen dog and thaya <laughs> they're all gonna die bitch you're gonna stay here with some you're gonna stay here with stubborn ass king thaden because he doesn't want to do shit and we're all gonna this whole journey that's on been on a blade of a knife it's about to get fucked because we're choosing to help some farmers and stable boys. Fuck that. If that was me, I'd be tempted to be like, fuck that. I'm going back to Elrond and Rivendell. Or, you know, I might just go ahead and take the route amongst the caves with the women and children. <laughs> and back to you, Jay Nelly. <laughs> sure. Yeah, there's a few things I have before I even really get back to uh, Aragorn and, and King Theoden and Legolas over there at Helm's Deep. So the, next, the thing I have, I'm still back with the, the perspective of Frodo, Sam, Faramir, and all them. One of the biggest things that I was disappointed in the film, truly disappointed, is the way they characterized or had Faramir portrayed. Because in the book, he was very fair and very, like, not wanting anything to do with the ring. He was, you know, he only took them, quote-unquote, hostage to just make sure that they were not enemies and was like hey like I don't care what I don't care what this weapon is I don't care if I found it on the side of the road I would not pick it up like he had no desire at all for any sort of glory for himself he just was a captain of his army and he wanted to make sure Gondor was safe and so he had no sort of like malice like in this film Faramir almost acted like an asshole a few times you know he was a stand-up guy from the very very beginning in the novel and, and, and keep in mind too the the whole part where Smeagol and Gollum and Chase talked about this where he's like, what did they take? And Smeagol's like, my precious! Like That didn't happen in the book because what ends up happening, if you guys remember, in the novel, in The Two Towers, Sam is the one that ended up slipping up on accident and telling Faramir about the ring. And so and even from there, Faramir still didn't try to take it or anything like that. And this one, he goes right up to Frodo, puts a sword to his neck and like takes the chain up in his sword and says, the ring of power in my grasp. But he just, th this doesn't happen. And it's a fully a false portrayal of the character. And that's what really frustrates me about this film so far. Like th That's one of the biggest things I really didn't like. So that, that bothered me. But then we get back to the Helm's Deep side of things. And obviously Aragorn is alive. He ended up surviving that fall. This horse was able to find him. He grabs himself up on the horse. He starts trotting back to like where Helm's Deep is, and he sees the host of orc armies coming at at Helm's Deep that are going to be attacking them. He ends up getting back to the whole um, the whole keep of Helm's Deep. He walks up through it, opens the door, and this is where this love interest with with Eowyn hits a weird peak because. Like obviously Legolas and Gimli are excited to see Aragorn. They're ready to fight alongside, and you know they didn't say you know get every man and child of age to like Chase was saying. They go farmers, harvesters, whatever. You can hold a weapon. We're gonna need you. And this is the part where she wants to fight alongside him, and she's like, you know, the people that because he, he tells her, uh, you're not mine to command. Like if King Thaden says you got to get in that cave and tunnel with women and children, I I can't overrule him. You know, he's your king. And she was like, well, the, you know, the people who fight alongside you don't do it because you command them. They do it because they would not be parted from you because they love you. And it was, I think in a way it was like almost her kind of saying that she loved him, which is a little bit strange because they've known each other for like four minutes. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it just doesn't seem that, you know, there could be that level of, of feeling that quickly. But, you know, now now we've got this interesting love triangle. Obviously, everyone has a, a deep level of affection for Aragorn. 
Aragorn obviously seems to still be taken with Arwen because she he takes that necklace back from Legolas uh, that he ended up grabbing from that dead orc, and you know, but he also told Arwen to leave, so he's not really sure where things are going to stand. So you got this interesting love triangle thing that just doesn't happen in the book at all. So it's just an interesting <laughs> addition from the film side of stuff. Kind of cool. I don't know, but yeah. And, and to Chase's point where he talks about that big argument between Legolas and Aragorn, like, yes, that was interesting and it was fun, but there was no argument between them. They were always kind of with each other in, in the novel. So that was just kind of an interesting way to take it. And I kind of get it. I don't hate it. It's just it is a difference. Uh, then here's the big part. This is one of the bigger differences in the entirety of the film versus the novel is that the elves end up coming to join Rohan at Helm's Deep. No one helps them at Helm's Deep until towards the end. I'll say that. But that is like the elves coming to assist, that, that's just a pure addition. You know, that the, the, and this is where Chase, I was talking to Chase about this before we started our episode today. And I was saying, you know, because he was like, oh, I think that is Haldir from the Lothlorien Forest. And I was like, I'm wondering if that was because <laughs> I know we saw him in the Fellowship of the Ring. My problem is, is that when he greets King Theoden and Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli, he comes up there and he says, you know, Lord Elrond said there was once an alliance between men and elves and, you know, we have come to honor that alliance if you will have us kind of deal. Like, I, I know I paraphrase that, but uh, why, why would Haldirbeer talking about, you know, basically a message from Lord Elrond if he was commanded by Galadriel, who is the ruler of the the Lothorian forest because Lothorian and, and Rivendell are completely separate factions. They're even two different types of elves. So it's just an interesting, you know, that could be a potential plot hole. If that's who that was supposed to be, like the Haldir from Lothorian forest, that could potentially be a plot hole from the film side of stuff. And so, I mean, the whole thing was a full addition anyways, the elves never appeared to help Helm's deep in the book anyways, but that's just something that I wanted to, to touch on is that, you know, let's, let's just for argument's sake, say that, you know, the book had that in there. It still would be an interesting potential plot hole if, you know, he's telling them that Elrond sent them when he's supposed to be commanded by Galadriel. So I don't know. Very interesting. Then another difference I've got here, and this is going to shift to the Mary Pippin and Treebeard perspective, is that they have this, what's called an Entmoot, which is a meeting amongst the Ents. And they do have that in the book. You know, we always joke about it where Mary and Pippin were out, you know, drinking with Briegelad, and who doesn't really <laughs> appear at all in, in the film. But the decision that the Ents come to is that they are not going to take part in the war. That is not true at all. In the book, they were ready to go right after that conversation. Like, yes, the conversation took a while, but after that conversation, they were, they were like, ready to go to war from there. In the film here, it takes, you know, Merry and Pippin to do a certain thing that hasn't come up just yet, and I'll get to that when I do. But the reason why I mentioned, I think this is why the film did it this way, because if we think about it, if we just go specifically based off of the novel, what has Merry and Pippin really done for the series at all so far? They really haven't had any big role or made any huge impact, not a big purpose. The best thing I can think that, that would be said is that Merry ended up guiding them partially through the old forest before they got you know, attacked by some of the trees and Tom Bombadil had to help them out. But outside of that, they haven't really been a great addition to anything that's going on in in the novel series, right? Mary and Pippin have pretty much done nothing except get captured and have Aragorn and, and Legos <laughs> and Gimli have to chase them down and try to save them and, and all that. So I think 
the reason why it was done this way in the film, and it makes sense, is like I think they were trying to give Mary and Pippin a bigger purpose and role. And so I kind of wanted to you know, turn it over to you here. Like, do you agree with that? Is that something that you also thought about? Why do you think that they changed it from, you know, they were ready to go to war right away after the ant moot in the book to where they're like, oh, no, we're not going to go to war. We, you know, it's not our part. Do you think it was because they felt they could give Mary and Pippin a bigger role? What, what do you think? My personal opinion, I think they tried to over-dramatize it because there's a part that happens later where, you know, Treebeard sees all the trees burned up and gets mad, and then that's when things kind of escalate. So well, I feel keep, like keep they in mind. Well, to... also keep in mind. I want to just touch on what you said there. Keep in mind the only reason they went that way is because Pippin told them to. Pippin's like, because yeah. they, they were going to take them to the one side of the forest, and then he's like, no, take us south, and he's like, south, that would take mm-hmm. you past Isengard. And there was a reason Pippin did that because he wanted Treebeard to see what happened by Isengard, and that would what, was what would rile him up to to get him angry, and that's ended up what happened. So that's why I say like. You know, I don't think it was over-dramatized to where Treebeard just saw the fires because Pippin, I think, did it with that purpose of, hey, if we can get him to see, maybe they'll change their mind. And that just didn't happen. So I just was curious, do you think that they did that because Pippin was, they wanted to give them a big, bigger bigger role and more purpose? Like, what do you think? Probably. I could, I could see that because if you go back to the novel, they had a, it, because you, it, if we're talking about this, then we have to really look at the way things are chopped up in the film. Because if you look back in the novel, it really talks more about the Palantir with their role and uh, with Mary's role. Um, and I think that's kind of why they gave them a bigger... Uh, I can't even say... Well, let's say, yeah, keep in mind, like the Palantir or... does happen. Like There's a couple things that happen in the next film that happen in this novel exactly. for some reason. So it's like... <laughs> And it wasn't really Mary's role either. That was more Pippin when we talk, if we talk about the Palantir anyways. Yeah, Pippin. But, okay, yeah. yeah. But my point is, is like, because the way they chopped it up, that's like, we'll get into that in the next installment. But like, none of that is in this film. So I feel like they had to do something they felt like uh, just as producers and directors because a big part of that novel is you know, Pippin with the Palantir and, and that sort of thing. So it goes into a lot of, you know, their conversation and stuff, which goes into a lot of the next film. But because of that, I my opinion is they had to kind of try to give them more of a role because they felt like, I guess, their role was being very diminished based on everything else that was going on with other character perspectives. But um, at the same time... <laughs> The extended edition is like six hours altogether, so <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't really have an answer for it. My only answer would be, I guess, to try to give them more screen time, maybe. Yeah, I could. I, I think that was definitely just to give them, because like I said, they really haven't been beneficial to this this company the entire time. They really haven't done much that good, anyways. Like Pippin's kind of screwed them over a couple times, like in Moria, and like you were mentioning the Palantir that we went over in the book, like. Pippin's kind of been a more of a detriment than a benefit, <laughs> to be honest. Um, <laughs> right. So maybe this is their way of like, hey, this is this is their little role here. But uh, who knows? Then also now to kind of go back over to the Battle of Helm's Deep. You know, in, in this whole battle, I didn't break it down in a way that I'm gonna sit here and talk about like the number of sword strokes or how many arrows were flown or the orcs that piled over the, the keep. But basically, I thought this this was probably the finest 
battle scene we've seen on screen maybe ever. If we talk about any fantasy fiction franchise, that when we've seen a bunch of battles on there, this was just it was it was long, and it was detailed, and there was a lot of really beautiful. Like, there's stunning things to see on screen. You know, we we saw like the sea of orcs with all their spears in the air. We saw ladders flying up them, coming over the ramparts. We've seen arrows flying down, taking people out. We saw that one guy where Legolas, who's like a dead shot. You know, uh, they had that one orc who was sprinting with the exploding fire, which is kind of exactly what happens. The way the way it was presented in the book was a little bit different, but the exploding fire is something that does definitely happen, where he tries to get to that grate and, and blow it up. Like Wormtongue was talking to Saruman about, like this is the way to get back into the uh, the the keep. This is the way to get past the walls. That uh, Legos shot the guy once and hit him in the shoulder, and they, they, Legos almost never misses. And, you know, it hit him once in the shoulder, and he's like, and Aragorn's like, kill him! And hits him with another one, hits him on the other shoulder, and he's about to fall dead, but then just jumps at the right moment, and explodes the, the tower there, and all the rock comes, like, flying down. So that was really cool. We see, like, you know, Legolas not being able to, to hit a moving target for the pretty much the first time ever. But on top of that, you think about how much battle they had gone through, the, the, the weariness, how tired they were. On top of they just had fought all the wolves of Isengard not too long before that. In the, if we were talking about from the film perspective, you know, obviously the, the wolves of Isengard thing doesn't happen in the book. Um, but we have these crazy parts that we see how hopeless it gets. Like the elf lead, you know, Haldir, whatever his name is, he dies in the movie. And he obviously wasn't there in the book at all because the elves weren't there. But... That, that's a big aspect too. You know, you see the leader of the elves, and remember, elves are the, the top tier warriors in Middle Earth, right? Like, you know, so it's kind of interesting to see some farmer still alive, but the leader of the elf army, like <laughs> dead, is just very, very interesting. And and you know, the entirety of the battle, and I don't want to go the 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 full spectrum of it because it starts shifting pers- like uh, perspectives during Helm's Deep Battle. So it's hard for me to just kind of split it up and go from another one, go back to it, and all that. But just the the battle in its entirety was just really stunning to see on screen. And it wasn't one of those things where, you know, in Game of Thrones it was difficult to see. It was dark and you had to really squint and, and try to figure out what was happening. The lighting of it was great. And keep in mind, this movie was from 2002. So these effects, they still hold up, you know, 20 years later. <laughs> it's, it's amazing how, how great it is. And, you know, we had the, the launching the the boulders over, you know, the whole bracing the gate. And even Thaden says, like, you know, this is almost a direct quote from the book. He's like, what can men do against such reckless hate? You know, when he was starting to almost give up in a way. And then when Aragorn was like, you ride out with me. And that that's almost a, spot on for what happens in, in the book. So there's some really good uh, accuracies, a lot of differences as well. But overall, this is one of the most stunning battle scenes you'll you'll see on film like period the length of it like what you saw go down the type of choreography for the battles like aragorn throwing gimli onto that bridge and jumping over there and just hacking away at these orcs who were trying to you know break in where Thaden's like give me as much time as you can and you know just it, it's amazing what a small force was able to do against you know again ten thousand. it was very reminiscent of the movie 300 or like the you know that story about the romans back in the the trojans back in the day my apologies uh, where they held off against, a, you know, 300 held off against a much larger army. Because keep in mind, they even said there was 300 men against, you know, 10,000 or whatever. So it was it was almost a nod or like a wink back to the 300 uh, sort of deal with, with the Trojans there. So I thought that was, that was really cool. Battle as a whole was awesome. And then before I finish like, the, the battle itself, I'll talk about a couple things where they shift perspectives in the middle of the Battle of Helm's Deep. Um, 
but one more thing here. I know I just mentioned it, but I thought that was a cool addition where the whole backdoor bridge jump sneak attack by Gimli and Aragorn. I just thought that was dope as fuck. Like they they had a way to because they were those things were breaking through that door. The orcs were, and there was no way you could have really stopped it because you, you know you can only hack so much through half a broken piece of wood. So they went out that back door, slipped around, jumped on. Them. I remember that one boy. He's like. Uh, I'm gonna have to. He's like, you have to toss me. He's like, toss you. He's like, just don't tell the elf. <laughs> and so, yeah. but that was really cool. But then they they had all that. But then, jumping back into you know the the perspective with, with Frodo and Sam, like he's very very rough with them, and he's like, you know, tell tell my father we bring him a mighty gift and all that. And it's just it's not his character in the book. It's not what happens. It's not accurate whatsoever. And I really don't like it because Faramir's character in the novel is just so much more of a even keel guy there was no you know trying to prove himself to his father at this point like you know maybe when we read into the return of the king maybe some things change and adjust but from what we've read so far through it like he's just been a very you know very pragmatic and you know he doesn't get riled up he he keeps his cool under pressure it's just he's not acting like his character and this is like the one one of the few times of the characters in here i just didn't like the way they were portrayed but anyways to talk about the next thing here where uh, this is a perspective of Mary Pippin and Treebeard. This is where Chase was mentioning how we get to like the southern part of the forest, which takes them close to Isengard. Pippin did that on purpose. He said, "Hey, take us south to Isengard because like we're so small. The closer you are to danger, the further you are from harm." And Treebeard's like, "Well, it doesn't make sense to me, but you guys are small, so let's let's give it a try. Let's go that way." And that's when he sees what happened to the forest close to Isengard. And now he freaks out and cries out in Entish, and now the Ents are ready for war out of nowhere. So, like, it was very strange. I know, I think, like I said, I think it gives pretty good evidence that they just wanted to give Merry and Pippin uh, a little larger role that helps them, you know, make them be a little helpful for once. And then a couple more things here. There was this weird part where it shifts back to Frodo, Sam's perspective, where this is another addition, too. This city gets under attack. Like the one, the one where Faramir is at, they're under attack out of nowhere. That doesn't happen in the novel. Yeah. Like that was just so weird. They they let him go right after the the whole waterfall incident with Smeagol, and they figure out where he's taking them to, and he gives them you know food and and gives them those. Remember those staffs that they, he gave them that they they, they yeah. shrunk down to like the Hobbit size. We're talking about the novel side of things right now, and so they just left basically from Athelion, the city of Athelion. Where in this film they're getting attacked at Osgiliath again, <laughs> and that's, that's where like the Nazgul comes in out of nowhere, and this is one of the worst things that the film could have done. Like they had the the attack on the people, and then Frodo gets into this weird trance, and he's like, "They're here, they <laughs> yeah, come." Was it was so know. strange, this weird demon possession voice referring to the Nazgul that never happens in the book with that attack there, and even remember he was. He was took the ring out of his shirt and like he had it inches from his finger, like he was gonna put the ring on in front of the Nazgul. What the fuck was that? <laughs> like, like the worst thing you could ever do. And not like only if that, he actually did that, this would be over. Well, this would be over. One hundred percent, and not even just that. It's just that it didn't happen at all. You know, the, the closest it got was in Minas Morgul and talking about the novel perspective. From the novel, he there was in, they were in Minas Morgul, and he was starting to go towards the the Witch King, to, and at the bridge, which is the, you know the leader of the Black Riders on the Nazgul there, and they had their army. The Nazgul had, or you know, the Witch King had his own army, from Minas Morgul coming out, and Frodo started like walking towards that and starting to give away, and 
it even said from there, it seemed as if the presence of the ring was felt by the ring wraith. Where, I don't know, if you're standing in front of it, about to put the ring on your finger, you don't think it's going <laughs> to see that? How the hell did they get away? Are you kidding me? You're going to tell me that the, that's what's going to happen? That was just the stupidest thing. Like I it was very frustrated by that ad. Very, very bad. I don't care how cool it looked to see the dragon <laughs> facing Frodo. It did look Frodo. cool, though. It did look badass, but... Looked cool, but huge plot hole. Cool. <laughs> that definitely affects like the outcome of the storyline for sure, because you're gonna pretend that the ring like wasn't gonna get do everything in his power to get that ring that's ten feet in front of him. Get the fuck out of here! Like, oh, Sam knocks him to the ground, and that's when the Nazgul flies away. Oh, never mind, that wasn't the ring. It couldn't have been the ring. No problem. Hey, your boy. I thought you were gonna mention like, your boy Faramir saving the like, day. He was basically like Legolas and Gandalf. He could take it on the Witch King by himself. Apparently, it was fine. I'm just saying, like the ring was there, <laughs> and you know, think that that yeah, that was very frustrating that really pissed me off but uh, <laughs> anyways worse than the pop-up book man i thought the pop-up book was pretty good <laughs> yeah that that was just it was really frustrating and then the last thing i'll do i'll talk here before i turn it over to chase to, to catch up with his differences is at the end of the battle helms deep where they all ride out for the last glory uh you know king Thaden and aragorn they were just gonna go out there and fight with what they had to the death to the last man they all ride out on their horses and take all the orcs down off the bridge. And that's when, you know, the whole voice of Gandalf's like, uh, you know, on the morning of the third day, look to the look to the east or something like that. And I, that's a paraphrase. But anyways, Gandalf brings back Eomir and the Rohirrim. And in the book, it's actually he brings back Urkenbrand, which is one of the leaders of the, I don't know if it was the Westfold side of the Rohirrim or the Eastfold, whatever, whatever side it was. But in the book, Aomer uh, was with them the whole time at Helm's Deep. Him and Aragorn fought alongside each other at Helm's Deep in the book. Where here, remember, he was banished by Wormtongue, and that's where Gandalf had to, had to go. So that was a big difference, is who they brought back and ended up beating the rest of the uh, Orc army, the Isengard army, at Helm's Deep. This was kind of cool, though. And this is only in the extended edition, though. The, right, the theatrical edition does not show this. But the... Uh, Hjorns, which are the Entish things that are kind of in between Ents and Trees. They actually did bring those in, in in the extended edition when the orcs tried to run through them and the Hjorns took the rest of the orcs out there. That actually doesn't happen in the theatrical version. So it was basically just, you know, Aomer and the Rohirrim and Gandalf who basically take out the rest of the orcs on the theatrical side of stuff. But the, the big difference, like I said, Aomer was there during Helm's Deep the entire time, was fighting alongside Aragorn. You know, they Aragorn almost died a couple times. Aramir was there to, to help out. And then, um, you know, they bring back Urkenbrand in, in the book where, like I said, they bring back Aomir and the Rohirrim who was banished here in the film. So that was just another, another big difference there. And I know they went on a, on a big tangent of all those differences. Whatever, they were the ones that kind of upset me, the ones that kind of changed the plot just a little bit. But outside of that, I'll go ahead and turn it over to Chase to catch up with where his differences are at, and then we'll keep rolling. No, it's badass, man. Um, I'm going to play this great debate card because this is one people ask us a lot about. Um, I'm summoning the great debate card here. Fuck yeah. So, and we're going to, and, you know, we we do usually wind up bringing other franchises up, but, and I am going to bring this one up because this is why people were so disappointed with The Long Night because... Here's an issue, too, is before The Long Night in Game of Thrones came out, there was actually an article that was written uh, by a publicist that said The Long Night had 
gotten as much screen time as you could possibly get out of a possible TV show just for a battle scene. And the only battle scene that had a longer screen time in history of any cinema was Helm's Deep. And so everyone was kind of expecting this big buildup you had to, you know, that we, it took seasons, you know, it took eight seasons to get there uh, for this big long night battle that was supposed to be really, in my opinion, the entire climax of the show. And we thought we were going to get a battle like Helm's Deep. I was fine with the way it was, but like even when we covered it in our first season, it's like they lightened it up a little bit, a little bit. I remember watching that shit on screen where the first time when it premiered, I couldn't see fucking shit. Like I didn't know what the fuck was going on. I did not have any problems with Helm's Deep. It was just as good as when I watched it in theaters as a kid. Even with the rain and the damn thunderstorm going on, I saw exactly what was going on. Had no problems whatsoever. And the long night, it was supposed to... Yeah, it was dark and windy with snow. There was no rain, no none of that. And I couldn't see shit when it first premiered. So what is the deal here, man? What is the deal? What's your thoughts on that? I think, and like... I. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we've talked about this before when we were back on the Game of Thrones arc. When we went back and watched it for the second time, I do think that The Long Night was either touched up or redone because I could see a lot more of it the second time we watched it. And I don't know if that maybe is because The Long Night was the episode everybody who was a fan of Game of Thrones was looking forward to, to where maybe it just overloaded the streaming capacity and it made it a little grainy because everyone in in the world was not obviously I'm exaggerating but you know however many millions of people were watching this one episode maybe the, the quality of the streaming just was was uh was affected by the amount of like a server overload because I remember going back and the second time we watched it through when we covered it it wasn't that bad like I could I could see a lot more of what was going on during the long night so I don't know if that's definitely part of it um yeah I don't know but also keep in mind too what the, the long night was supposed to be it was supposed to be like, you know, winter has come for, you know, winter fell, I guess, or just men in general. And it's supposed to be dark and desolate and give you this, this, you know, air of hopelessness and, and all that. And, you know, there was some cool parts of the long night. Overall, I was disappointed in terms of how predictable it was, what people were going to die and, you know, how we didn't get any sort of showdown at all between John and the Night King. And that was kind of frustrating. You know, so there's there a lot of issues I had with the long night as a whole, but, in terms of you know the question you're asking me, like why, I'm assuming this is the question you're asking me, why yeah. visual effects were were better for a 2002 film versus a 2019 series? Um, I don't know. I don't. I don't have an answer for it. I, like I said, I know that part of it. It's probably because of what it was supposed to signify. It was supposed to represent darkness. You know taking over it was supposed to be something maybe it was something that was going to add to the fear of it you know when it's dark on screen you don't know where things are popping out of you don't know what's going to happen so i don't know if it was more of like an an added effect to what they wanted to do and maybe that was a purposeful thing because obviously we've seen for example if we're talking about game of thrones specifically the episode the spoils of war that was stunning on screen looked great Uh, you know the Mm -hmm. the dragon flying down thing blowing fire out everywhere horses you know trotting things going to ash Braun throwing you know that huge spear through that like catapult thing and there was just like the spoils of war was beautiful looked great on screen you know so we know it's not anything to do with the equipment that they used or anything I just think it was might have been 
an error in judgment of what they wanted to portray. And it frustrated people because, you know, you spend so much time looking forward to one thing. I think part of it is just everyone had their expectations just so high up because you're right. They did mention how this was going to be the biggest and longest battle scene on screen since Helm's Deep. And so everyone remembers how great Helm's Deep was, and it's still something that holds up 20 years later. It's still a great battle scene. You know, it's nothing that you still nothing you can really take away from it. And so I don't know. People maybe just had their expectations too high on top of the fact that maybe they just made a incorrect decision. And that's and that's like that's something that can be debated, right? Who knows? So maybe some people enjoyed the fact that it was dark and you couldn't see things because death can kind of come out of nowhere type of deal. But maybe some I know a lot of people were frustrated by the lack of visibility. So I don't know. I guess those are my overall thoughts on it. Just you know. It definitely wasn't the, the the production quality. It definitely wasn't the equipment that they used. I think it was more of a purposeful decision that was controversial more than anything. So that, that's my thought. Yeah, I agree with you. And in the end, so I still pick the Battle of Helm's Deep over the Long Night just because of, I mean, it's really amazing. Like, even the different way they you know each progression they made in these acts of this battle and how they filmed it uh and i still i'm actually one i actually do like the long night like i don't have a problem with that i think the whole aria scene is really cool where she goes into the actual you know into winterfell uh castle i think that's super cool where she's going in with the walkers i almost want to call them zombies (laughs) and she's kind of escaping around and uh, you know, and runs into Melisandre and all that stuff. I think it's really cool. Um, so there's different aspects I like at each one, but my point was really like, I mean, you know, a 2002 film, you can see everything clear as day. And then when it came out, it was kind of like, it, it was, uh, I don't want to say grainy, it was just really dark. But then, yeah, we watched it later and it was a little bit better. So, but um, kind of here, what I'll uh, just say, I'm, you really took that battle perfect so i'm just gonna hit on a couple points that i thought were really cool that really don't matter so much like when the battle started i thought this was really interesting because it was kind of like uh, in history class when you're a kid you heard about like the american revolution like the shot heard around the world like no one knew who really did it like i thought this was really cool you had the old man this wasn't in the novel either either he was like struggling to hold his arrow <laughs> and then he let go and it hit the orc and the orc like falls and dies and then they just charge at the walls and Theoden just says, so it begins. And Aragorn just says, prepare to fire. <laughs> so I thought it was a really cool opening there. Um, I, I did like how, you know, they it was very similar. They tried to hold true to the book where they were keeping count of the score. I thought that was good as they were climbing up the walls. Gimli and Legolas were going back and forth on that. Um, and I don't, this kind of shows more of Theoden's like arrogance. Like, I want to say, like, a fourth into the battle, he goes, Is this it? Is this all you can conjure, Saruman? I don't really know what was up with that. <laughs> like, I mean, you're getting your ass handed to you. <laughs> I don't really know what that was. <laughs> you're getting your ass. Handed. What are your thoughts on that? It kind of looked like he was getting his ass kicked to me, man. I think that in the beginning parts of the battle it looked like it was boding well for them because the uh infrastructure still had not been broken yet the the, the exploding fire hadn't destroyed the little great area and allowed them through the wall so he was 
maybe thinking along the lines of, yes, we're losing men, but they're losing, like, you know, there's 10,000 of them, there's 300 of us that shouldn't even be this close of a contest. And the fact that, like, we're repelling them this well, this far into it is a good sign for us. And so I think that's probably why he did that and said that. But I agree with you. Like, that, you never say something like that in the middle of a battle. That's, that's, <laughs> that's arrogance at its finest. So, and he, and he grew to eight, he had to eat those words when shit got real, real messy. So, yeah. Yeah. No, hundred hundred percent agree. But yeah, I, I guess I could see that. Like maybe it wasn't like, oh, we haven't lost this many. I thought we would <laughs> so far with these farmers and stable boys and ferrymen. <laughs> but uh, and uh, you nailed this part perfect where he was taking down the orc. One thing I do want to mention, it was like he was. They had found the way where he was like going through. It was like the gate at like the sewer is where it was. Was it like a sewer or like a moat or something that they were trying to go through? Yeah, it was. It was like the drainage system so a sewer grate that's what it was and it looked just basically it almost looked like a, t- a tic-tac-toe uh board there with metal of metal but it's very small and it was it almost looked rusted out anyways and that's where remember when worm tongue said there's one weakness that's where it's at and so that's where they went to do that exploding fire thing yeah you know what it reminded me of it actually reminded me of the entrance they used to go into high garden when the unsullied broke in yeah, yeah, it did. Uh, um, wait, wait, not High Garden. Um, what's it called? Um, Her- was it Heron Hall? No, uh, the where? What's it called? It, 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 Castle Rock. Castle Rock. Castle Rock. Yeah. That was it. Castle Rock. Yeah, good call. Castle Rock. Uh, it was Braun that wanted High Garden. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, Braun wanted High Garden. Um, but uh, yeah, you you nailed that part. You know, where he was like bring him down Legolas <laughs> and he couldn't bring him down it explodes um but when they get inside the walls and you nailed that part where you know Gimli and Aragorn are on the bridge just trying to buy him some time taking him out one by one and Legolas then pulls him up uh by those ropes where they were shooting like almost like the harpoons to climb over the walls there um and this is where you know Theoden was commanding everyone to pull back and this is the part I wanted to go into that it's not that important, but it just goes to show like I me personally, I didn't like the way they did his character in the film because it's almost like he gives up in a way. He's like in the you know, they've already breached the walls and they're like hiding in the keep there. And Theoden says, The fortress is taken, it's over. And Aragorn says you said this fortress would never fall when your men defend it. They still defend it. They have died defending it. Is there no other way for the women and children to get out of the caves? Is there no other way? And then that's when Aragorn is told about the mountain pass and how the women and children can get out. But Theoden goes, so much death. What can men do against such reckless hate? And that's when uh, Aragorn, of course, says, right out with me. Right out with me to meet them. And then Theoden says, for death and glory. Like, he's basically almost given up in a way. But Aragorn says, for Rohan, for your people. And Gimli says, the sun is rising, and they hear Gandalf's voice. Look to my coming at first light on the fifth day. At dawn, look to the east. Theoden says, yes, yes. The horn of Helm Hammerhand shall sound in the deep one last time. Almost like he's like, he just accepts that he's going to die here. And Gimli goes, yes. And Theoden says, let this be. 
the hour when we draw swords together. Fell deeds awaken, now for wrath, now for ruin, and a red dawn. And this was cool. Gimli blows like the horn of Rohan, and that was pretty cool. Um, in a way, in a way, it's kind of, he kind of pulls a hound here, is the way I'm thinking it is, of Theoden, because it's almost like when the hound in the long night was like, you're fighting death. You can't be dead. Fuck off. <laughs> Fuck off. You can't be dead. <laughs> and then he looks at Arya and is like, tell her that <laughs> with Sir Beric. So it kind of reminded me of that moment. And then there's a moment we'll get into that I don't want to give away, but uh, next installment that we'll get into about a month from now, you know, where I see the same fear in your eyes, the same fear that wants to take the hot to me. <laughs> and that's all I'll say about that. So kind of reminded me of that i just thought it was badass uh you nailed it when you know they they go out and they're swinging and this was really cool when gandalf comes down the hill with aomer there and you know like the sun was blinding the orcs as they're just slaying him i call it the slay fest it was a lot like uh we've talked about multiple times on the show it's kind of like battle of the bastards here like when uh the veil came down um you know, like Sansa Stark, not a big fan of Sansa Stark, but she says, the veil won the battle, not you. Orchard <laughs> said, Jon Snow, hi, you have the numbers, but would your men want to fight for you if you wouldn't fight for them? <laughs> this is badass. Absolutely phenomenal. Uh, but yeah, no, that's all I'll say there. I just thought it was super cool. Um, and I'll turn it back over to you, man. Sounds like a plan. Yeah, I only got a couple more differences that <clears throat> kind of round out the film a bit. So the the next few things I'll take, and I'll just finish it straight up and let Chase take his from here. But this is back at the perspective of Frodo and Sam here. After Frodo does that weird thing where he pulls out the ring right in front of the, the Witch King there, the lead ring wraith, and Sam ends up tackling him back, and like you said, Faramir hits him with the, the arrow and the Nazgul flies off a bit. Uh, we get this weird interaction with Frodo and Sam where Frodo jumps on top of Sam and pulls his sword out at his neck. What the fuck was that? <laughs> like, like he's like, it's your Sam, Mr. Roger. Like, that never happens in the book at all. That's such a, a poor characterization. Like, I get it's a dramatic effect because like, now we've got this other aspect of things like, oh, now there's contention between Frodo and Sam, the ring bearer and his guardian. And yes, it makes in the film it will make it a little bit harder to complete this task. Especially something that happens in the next film that also does not happen in the book at all, which I'll talk about, where basically to give you a hint, uh, certain people go their separate ways. And that does not happen in the novel at all, period. So I, I, I understand why they do it. It adds a little bit of more like dramatics and like contention amongst the people who we need to be rooting for who have the ring and their power to destroy it. But like this is just an out-of-left-field out characterization of, of Frodo here just jumping on top of Sam and holding his sword sting at his throat about to kill him until Sam like talks him down like hey it's me don't you know it's me like, like that just never happens and that was really frustrating to see on like I, that was stupid I'm sorry that was just stupid but anyways that uh, <laughs> that was that you did that, that perfect by the way not to interrupt you it's your Sam <laughs> <laughs> that was great it was just frustrating and then um the next thing here 
is Faramir, once he sees that whole interaction, realizes, I guess he comes to his senses, like, oh, man, I can't stand in the way of this. You know, he lets Frodo and Sam go, and then one of his other people who are underneath him is like, you know the, the law of your father. You know, if you let them go, your life is forfeit. And Faramir's like, well, then it is forfeit. That's not true at all in the book. Like, like it's, not, it's not actually what happens. And I know I already mentioned when Faramir let them go. It was right after... Uh, the whole pool scene and they had the whole discussion of what route they were going to take and they fed them and brought gave them food and provisions and gave them, gave them like the walking sticks like that's what happens in the book where they get let go or here it's just all this added dramatics here where oh well Faramir if you let them go you're gonna your, your father is gonna kill you you know you're literally it's, you're, you are having your life be forfeit for letting strangers go especially with such great power like I don't know, man. It was just a weird addition. I didn't like it, and it made no sense. It didn't need it. You didn't need to do it. Like it was just something really silly, but that frustrated me. And then I already mentioned this part. The extended editions did include the Hurons for a brief moment when the remaining orcs of Helm's Deep tried to flee. They ran into the trees, and all of a sudden you see the trees kind of attacking and, and like shaking in there, and end up taking out the rest of the orcs. That's actually not in the theatrical uh, version. Fun fact. Then the last couple things here. We go back to Merry and Pippin, and this is something that does happen. I just like to see it on screen. It was cool. Is when they found like the South Farthing weed that they haven't had in a long time. Open up the barrels of the South Farthing weed after the ends had destroyed Isengard and like flooded it. They broke out the dam and flooded it there, which is really cool. That was awesome to see. And they found that we need. To, he's like, "Do you think we should share with Treebeard?" And Merry's like, "No, you know they're they're plants and they're relatives, so." We, we should keep this <laughs> secret and just to do it just so they didn't have to share it so i thought that was really funny and they were they were laughing so hard that Treebeard was trying to find them they kept looking underneath he kept trying to look underneath and figure out where they were i just thought that was that was a fun little addition not even really an addition because it was very similar to how that happened but it just it was a little bit later on and a little bit different but nothing nothing catastrophic so i, I did like how to see that on screen then another thing here as well is that when they get let go talking about from Farad, but back to Frodo and Sam's perspective, they get let go by Faramir. Smeagol has this weird thing where he hides behind the tree and argues with himself again, like the Smeagol versus Gollum phase, and he basically comes to the conclusion, he's like, she could do it. And that does kind of happen. In the book, it's a little bit different, like I said, with how they, he comes to that conclusion, because he already thought of that way before they even got uh, uh, captured by Faramir and them in, in the book. So, the way they did that was different, but they basically put it in a different way. It doesn't really affect the storyline at all. But the real big difference about this is in the book of the Two Towers, everything that happens in this novel, talking about from the point where they are let go by Faramir to the end of the novel, it's fully omitted from this film. They, they do put it into the next one, but Shelob's Lair, everything that happens in Shelob's Lair... All that, the stuff passing through Minas Morgul, getting taken by the orcs at the Watchtower after, at the end of the past before they get into Mordor. All of that happens in the Two Towers novel. None of it happens in the Two Towers film. And as Chase was mentioning as well, too, with the Palantir, with um, Gandalf and Theoden, Legolas and Gimli and Aylmer and a couple other of the Rohan riders, they go to Isengard and they take down Saruman and break his power in the book, in the Two Towers book. That does not happen in the Two Towers film, either the part one or part two, including them being extended editions. It, does, it happens in, 
you know, as Chase was mentioning, we'll talk about it in a month. That happens in the next installment of the film where they pick back up. So uh, that, that's a huge difference. The things that happen in this novel that are pushed back in, in the film here, the, the couple big key instances that just don't happen in, in, in the same, you know, to match up with the, the book and, and the movie. It's so those are the differences that kind of closes all the differences I have between the novel and film part two. So I'll, I'll turn it over to Chase to, to catch up with that and give his rest of his differences, and yeah, we'll go from there. Yeah, it's I agree with you 100% with the Faramir thing. Like, I have a big problem with that because he just seemed like a, a tool for this entire movie, honestly. Um, and I think it really changes his whole character persona, and that's why I have a big problem with it. Um, by the way, that's Carl in Van Helsing, if you guys forgot. <laughs> Just thought I'd throw that out there. Carl, no reason to say that, which is very interesting because he played such a nice guy there. He's a complete ass <laughs> in this film. So another thing, too, just a side note, they weren't blindfolded at all. Like oh, <laughs> you see it in ads. Yes, they yes yes they were. Were they? Yes, they were. Oh, okay. They were blindfolded. They the, the whole taking them to it was just a little bit different because they they dropped them off. They ended up carrying them to the thing and ripped the blindfold off of them when they got into oh, that cave. Okay. So they they for sure were blindfolded. That's what it was. I okay yeah I thought I missed it for a second then because I was looking towards the end like after he was having an argument over himself and stuff. But. No, that's actually happened like the first scene that we get of Frodo and Sam in this film part two is when they were blindfolded and taken like they, they ripped the blindfold off is like the first thing that we saw of Frodo and Sam in the film this the part two. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Um, but there wasn't that part though what I was really talking about was remember where he was giving them the choice he was like I'm still gonna have to your guide I'm gonna blindfold him but you have the choice whether you want to be blindfolded and they chose to they didn't go to that 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 was wrong so you're, you're mixing it up between what happened like Lothlorien they only wanted to blindfold Gimli and then they're like, no, we'll all be blindfolded together. Oh, okay. So, because in here they said no one can uh, be onlookers of this. Because remember, Ithilien is the lone city that that was taken over by the enemy. But there's that one little section that the enemy doesn't know about, and so that's the reason why everyone has to be blindfolded. That's not of Gondor because they don't want it getting into enemy's uh, ears of where this place is. It's their last stronghold in Ithilien. So that's why so they they that that you mix up the Lothlorien uh part with this part so no everyone had to be blindfolded no matter what with um Frodo and Sam here when they go into that cave okay gotcha yeah this is what happens when you have like (laughs) you have to get all the way through a film before you do differences episodes or get through all the way through a novel anyways one thing that was really odd here I mean (laughs) you said it almost perfectly you just didn't say the whole thing was he was like, it's just Sam. Like, he has this whole big-ass monologue as, like, um, you know, they were winning and finally the tides have turned at the Battle of Helm's Deep and they're slaying all the orcs and they're running to the trees. Sam goes, this was just, I don't know, I guess they pulled this out of their ass or something. He was like, it's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo. The ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger, they were. And sometimes, you didn't want to know the end. Because, how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing. 
this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out of the clearer. And those were the stories that stayed with you that meant something. Even if they were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories? They had lots of chances to turning back, only they didn't. They kept going. But they were holding on to it. They were holding on to something. And... I just don't know why we needed to hear that. <laughs> like, that was kind of like my point. Like, uh, I kind of want to, I mean, I guess that was kind of cool. Maybe some people like it. But then he was, Frodo says, what are we holding on to, Sam? And he goes, that there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo. And it's worth fighting for. He's like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why we needed to hear that. What were your thoughts on that big-ass monologue? I think it would have been better if we didn't have that in there, but that's just my personal opinion. I think that they tried to paraphrase some of what happens in the book because there is this part where they do talk about the stories of old and the stories that really matter and like how you know, the, the ones that ended up becoming the legends are the ones that kept going even when you know it didn't look like there was any hope and the ones that didn't you never heard about it because those stories were never made so i think that they they tried to paraphrase that in a way and on top of it i think it was just a it was a way of for sam to bring hope to frodo i guess that, hey everything looks dark and desolate now but you know we got to keep going we got to keep doing that it was basically his little rah-rah speech that didn't really hit the mark you know i, I didn't care for it either but i that's just what my thought is on it <laughs> Yeah, no, I agree with you 100%. I guess if you were trying to make a point, like, for the directors, sure, whatever. <laughs> I'll let it go. I'll let it slide. I'll let it slide. This can be forgiven. <laughs> Some, this cannot be forgiven. <laughs> Anyways, uh, Faramir, this cannot be forgiven. <laughs> but I did like this part. I like this ad. Because, you know, my boy Legolas, we got to give him some respect here. So Legolas is, like, straightening his bow, and he goes, final count? 42. And this is very similar to what happens in the book, but a little bit different. Gimli goes, 42? Oh, and he's like smoking his pipe weed. It's not a bad for a pointy-eared Elvis princeling. I myself am sitting pretty on 43. 43? And then uh, Legolas shoots the bow at like the death... I guess he's dead. <laughs> he was sitting on and he had the axe buried in the orc's head. He goes, he was already dead. He was twitching. <laughs> he goes, Gimli said, he was twitching because he's got my axe and buried, embedded in his nervous system. <laughs> That's what Legolas was like, 43. I just thought it was great. I thought it was a great ad. And these are the kind of ads I love because it's like, it doesn't, really affect the plot line it's just kind of a cool ad in there and i like how even at the beginning of helm's deep just kind of sitting back for just a second remember he was like would you like me to describe it to you or would you like me to get you a box and gimli kind of laughs because it's kind of showing more in the film now they're starting to become more friends which is good and then of course uh one of my favorite people here master master looks after us Master wouldn't hurt us. Master broke his promise. Don't ask Smeagol. Poor, poor Smeagol. Master betrayed us. Wicked? 
Trixie falls. We ought to wring his filthy neck. Kill him. Kill him. Kill them both. And then we take the precious. And we be the master. Smeagol. But the fat hobbit, he knows. His eyes always watching. Then we stabs them out. Put out his eyes and make him crawl. Yes, yes, yes. Kill them both. Yes, no, no. It's too risky. It's too risky. Sam, where's he gone? Hey, Gollum, where are you? Frodo, Smeagol. We could let her do it. Yes, she could do it. Yes, precious she could. And then we takes it once they're dead. Once they're dead. Shh. Come on, hobbits. Long ways to go yet. Smeagol will show you the way. <laughs> it was excellent. I love the way they ended this because it was... Uh, you know, especially if you read the book, you almost think, like, how could this be any longer? And then you realize, like, damn, this is leaving off on a cliffhanger. Like, even when it came out, we got to wait a whole nother year. But that was absolutely badass. I love it. Uh, I thought it was great. There were some issues I had with it. But overall, I thought it was good. What are your rankings on the film? Before I go into the rankings, I just wanted to provide evidence to what I was saying here about, like, the whole blindfolding incident and how it happened in the novel. I actually found the right page. And this is on page 316 in my book here on the Two Towers. It says, Here, alas, I must do you a discourtesy, said Faramir. I hope you will pardon it to one who has so far made his orders give way to courtesy as to not slay you or bind you. But it is a command that no stranger, not even one of Rohan that fights with us, shall see the path we now go with open eyes. I must blindfold you. As you will, said Frodo. Even the elves do likewise at need, and blindfolded we cross the borders of Fair Lothlorien. Gimli the dwarf took it ill, but the hobbits endured it. So that's right there. Shows like they, they were blindfolded, and all of them were forced to be blindfolded in the in the novel. There, so that was that was that. So, um, but in terms of how I rated the film, it's tough because I almost want to give two ratings. If I want to rate it to its accuracy it would be a different score than I rate it on a totality scale because on a totality scale it was very good when you think about the additions that they had like the Wolves of Isengard was a cool ad where it almost led to the fact that Aragorn could have been dead at that point in time um, the love interest side of things with you know Arwen and Elrond arguing each other and her agreeing to go to the Undying Lands and that's probably going to be the end of Arwen and Aragorn's relationship and now there's this new budding romance with Eowyn and that that, that that adds a little aspect to it but it's you know obviously it is a huge historical difference if you you know going to match it up with the novel itself and then obviously other things that aren't so big you know who they brought back to talk about Gandalf at the end of Helm's Deep to finish out the battle was Urkenbrand and like the, the west side of the Rohirrim versus you know in, in the novel because uh, Aomer was there the whole time fighting alongside Aragorn in Helm's Deep where in the novel, or I'm sorry, within the film he was banished by Wormtongue so he Gandalf went and grabbed him and all of the people who were loyal to him and came back and obviously with the, with the trees there. Then the whole character mischaracterization of Faramir that's one of the things that really really bothers me uh, about it. So just 
it, it's hard for me to give it a, a all-encompassing grade because there was a lot of action in this and it was a very fun film to watch like i said but if i it's if it's to, if i'm just rating it as a movie alone i would give it a very very high score if i have rated it as accuracy to the novel maybe like a mid-level score so if i'm going to kind of average it out in between the two just to give one one actual scale of one to ten rating i'm going to go ahead and give it an uh i'm going to give it an 8.6 out of 10 talking about the film that's this part two talking about part two specifically i'll give it an 8.2 out of 10 for the film for the novel i'm going to go ahead and give it an 8.7 it's it's not a big difference at all i like the novel just a little bit more because there was more added to it the whole shilob's lair happened in this the whole uh, attack on Isengard we're talking about not the obviously the end thing happened in the attack on Isengard but whole Gandalf breaking Saruman's staff and taking the Palantir it all happened in this one you know action-packed novel there was only one chapter of this novel that was kind of boring and that was more about the Ents talking to each other and trying to figure out what they were going to do that was a little boring but outside of that there was a lot that happened in this novel and it was not just the action which was also great but also the detail and the setups for what's going to come and how this is going to close out in the, in the final book. So I would give, I would say, quote unquote, part two of the novel, since there was, it's hard to split it up since we kind of just jumped back and forth between the pieces that were spit, split. Uh, 8.7 for the novel, 8.6 for film part two. Those are my ratings. What did you think? Yeah. Um, it's, it's, a uh, tough call for me because kind of like the same thing you were saying like I don't like the way they did some of the characters personas like Faramir and Theoden um, but and it, some things did change but I like some of the cool ads that they had like like we were talking about the Battle of Helm's Deep was amazing to see like it was cool reading about it but it was just so much better to visually see and the different creations they came up with on how they were doing the acts of that battle of breaking into the castle and stuff um also even i like that Gollum kind of like fights with his self a little bit more it makes that a little bit more dramatized but also a little bit more intriguing versus he's just kind of like a a snake in a way in the novel um so it's interesting to think because you almost got to like look at them in their own way but and then of course the novel had like Shelob and like the second part so the novel was pretty action-packed too there's just just like you said there was that one little chapter that was really tough I give the novel yeah I'll give the novel an 8.7 and I'll give the film an 8.7 I'll be generous because there's things that even though there's things I didn't like about the film, there's things like that whole word battle that they added where they kept, you know, making references back to Arwen with like the necklace and stuff. And that wasn't in the novel. So I think they were great in their own way. Um, I, it's, uh, I, it's definitely a film that I wouldn't mind just like sitting down watching one day to watch a badass fantasy movie. Like that's cool. Like that's kind of the way I'm looking at it, you know. Uh, so yeah, I'll give them both an 8.7. 
as a whole, if you look at the film by itself and the novel by itself, comparing them both, how would you part one and part two? How would you rank those? Yeah, to, to in, in its entirety, you're talking about if I'm going to take part one and part two in the extended edition of, of the film and compare it to the entirety of the the Two Towers novel. Is that the ask? Uh, correct. I would give. Hmm, man, this is tough. I would probably give the the film in its entirety, part one and part two, extended edition, an eight point six five out of 10 and the novel an 8.7 out of 10 it's in, in its entirety yeah I'm going to give them the same actually but I'm just like what I just said the same I'm going to give them both 8.7s because um, you know even looking at the film in the first part too like uh, even though it was more slow in the first part they even found cool little ads to add to it like we talked about last week like in the marshes where he actually fell into the water and was being kind of pulled down and Gollum saved him. Like I thought, or Smeagol, whatever he is. <laughs> I thought that was a really cool ad. Like that was interesting. You know, they found a way to make that a little bit more intriguing for that part. Um, and I mean, I think for the most part, I, I, I want to be generous with the film because it, they found ways to add things where it hasn't really overall changed the plot at all. By looking at other franchises, not bringing anything up, but like we talked about, like there's changes people can make making films based on movies that will entirely change a direction of the way the book was going. And even though it left parts out here, I kind of like it in the way the way they did it, because you can tell when directors try to rush things. And that's one thing they didn't do. They even came out with the extended editions and made sure they took their time, but they added what they wanted to add because they had these ideas to make it more kind of visually stunning and really cool to see on screen. Um, but they took their time and, and made sure they still were trying to stay, trying at least, to stay true to the book versus just, you know, just going off on their own tangent. So I thought it was good. So I'm going to give them both an 8.7 awesome yeah i mean which is great too this is this is these ratings that we've given for part one part two of fellowship of the ring and part one part two of the two towers they've well eclipsed any comparison that we've done for other franchises so you know i remember giving certain movies and a different franchise <laughs> like fives and sixes and like i think we even want to give a four at one point four point something i don't exactly remember which one or, or at what point but these are clearly worlds in a way better and a great adaptation like an adaptation from a f novel series to a f uh, film series it's better than anything that we've seen up until this point and so we'll, we'll, we'll you know kind of take a look into the return of the king uh, next week we're gonna start into the novel, and see kind of how it closes out, and then you know in, in about a month or so we'll hit the differences, part one and part two of the Return of the King, and really see if if they close out strong. You know if, if you know how close it's been so far. I think it's been nip and tuck between the novel and the film. I mean I think for the Fellowship I put the film above the novel, and I think for Two Towers I put the novel just above the film. And so I'm curious, you know, that, that gets very nip and tuck of what I liked more. And so we'll see how they close out with Return of the King, you know, throughout the remainder of this and then going into a lot of next month. And so 
you know, with that being said, did you have anything else that you wanted to add before we close out for the day? No, I, th- I thought it was great, man. I'm just looking forward to, uh, you know, keeping this train a rolling. <laughs> we, uh, still are on the up and up. It's not over yet. Um, it's been a great arc so far. I've been really impressed with the way the films have compared to the books and how the books, you know, um, actually have impressed me in a way. Like when we were just, you know, kind of walking through the forest and still getting to the forest of Tom Bombadil, it was taking its time, but it's, they've actually done really well. Um, Another announcement, you know, we just hit 50K downloads just on the podcast alone, not including any of our social media. So I appreciate you guys for that. But I'll let Jay Nelly go ahead and close us out, man. Sounds like a plan. So if this is your first time joining us, welcome. We hope you enjoyed what you heard and that you'll want to follow us along a little bit more. And if you're wondering on how to do that, I'll go ahead and let you know. So if you're looking for social media pages, we are on all forms of social media. We have an Instagram account at official ridiculous patronus we have a tiktok account at ridiculous patronus we've got a backup of each as well at fact underscore or underscore fantasy for instagram same thing for tiktok at fact underscore or underscore fantasy we have a facebook fan page jason josh factor fantasy we're on twitter rp factor fantasy snapchat rp factor fantasy we have our own website as well ridiculouspatronus.blogspot.com that chase has done a great job updating and putting clips of what we talk about on that page as well for the the more key moments that's great so you can follow us along on any of those areas on top of that if you do go ahead and follow us along go ahead and subscribe click like leave comments leave reviews on apple Podcasts. we love the reviews that we get the audience engagement is huge to us here and then on Spotify, I know they're starting to accept star ratings, so please don't be afraid to leave star ratings on, on Spotify as well. So, and, you know, speaking of those platforms on where you can find the podcast itself, if you are an Android holder, you can find us on Google Play, you can find us on Spotify. If you own an iPhone, you can find us on iTunes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, you can find us on uh, iHeartRadio, on Audible, on Amazon Music, Stitcher, Acast, Podbean. Wherever you get your podcast, Chase and Josh Factor Fantasy are there, but we're out for the day because you know this has been another ridiculous production. Chase and Josh. Factor Fantasy. Signing Signing off. off.